inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, If you're watching, I just showered. That's why I look like a drowned rat. (laughs) If you're listening, don't worry about it. My hair is just wet. But without further ado, today we have a ton of great questions, a lot about anxiety around therapy in between sessions, things about being able to tell strangers things that you can't tell people that you know, repressed memories, um, intrusive thoughts. We're also going to talk about, you know, therapy, maybe making things worse. How do we know? And OCD and anxiety. Okay. Let's jump into the first question. This one has a ton of comments below it. I'm going to read through all of this because they're all very closely related, and then we'll get into it, okay? So this first question says, Katie, how do you deal with anxiety in between therapy sessions? I ruminate about my therapy sessions every week on what we talked about, what I said, shouldn't have said, etc. I just can't turn off the anxiety for days after, and I lose sleep due to it. I get anxious for the next session, even just to talk about what I meant or correct what I said from last session. I've tried the coping skills from your videos, which work for a little bit, but my mind goes right back to it shortly after. Note, I am currently going one one session each week and two times per week is not an option. Okay. Any tips would be greatly appreciated. I only started therapy a few months ago and I and still feel strange about even going. But your podcast has made me feel less alone and more hopeful for the future. Yay! Says, thanks, Katie, for everything you do. Of course, I'm so glad I could be helpful. Another person says, yes, all caps. I am a writer and have always ruminated on dialogue. I can write well because I spend a lot of time learning how certain people talk and what their common mannerisms are, phrases, responses, etc. I used to be able to write dialogues so well of everyone that I knew that I could almost predict how conversations would go. Mm Mm-hmm. This is why we do role play in therapy sometimes before we actually go tell someone something difficult, because we often know people well enough to kind of assume or guess what they're going to say. Obviously, there's never, you know, we can't be 100% certain, but it's helpful because we usually know people well enough. Okay. Um, Let's see. Now, I write them less often, but I find myself doing this about therapy. Sometimes it helps me to get the gumption up to tell her out la- tell her things out loud or remember conversations that I had with her that are important. If you found a client's dialogue notebook full of dialogues about therapy, what would you say? What would you think? Another comment. As an add-on, I feel like I have the opposite where I ruminate about upcoming sessions and what I will say and how my therapist will respond. I agonize over finding the right words and almost create a mental script in my head. Then when I'm in session, I don't feel like I'm truly, quote unquote, feeling the words that I'm saying. Is this normal? How do I just let myself be on, uh, be on the days leading up to my session and not stress too much about finding the right things to say? Okay, I'm going to pause there because there are a few more add-ons, but it's, let's just dig into this. Now, having anxiety between therapy sessions tells me a lot. Whether it's about things that we have said or things that we're going to say, It's anxiety-based. When you say it's anxiety about therapy, that's exactly what it is. It's generalized anxiety disorder. Now, obviously, I can't say, you know, I diagnose you with that specifically, but a huge part of me is like, I really think medication in some form could be beneficial because now remember this, and I don't know, I probably haven't mentioned this in a while. I feel like it's maybe been a year or more, but when it comes to medication, you guys all know 
I am an advocate for therapy and medication in research shows and proves that it gives us the best outcome. However, I don't like to jump the gun on things like that. We don't have to give therapy or give medication to a patient right away, but I always want people to be open to the option because here's the big thing. If our mental illness, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, whatever it is, right? If it's getting in the way of us being able to participate in therapy, meaning my therapist can give me all this homework to do, but my depression keeps me unmotivated. I'm never going to be able to do it. Or in session, I'm so anxious about what I'm going to say or what I should have said or whatever that I can't even be present because I'm too busy worrying even in the moment in session, right? Not to mention after I like don't even know the homework. I can't remember what it was or it gives me so much anxiety. I can't do it. Either way, my mental illness is so debilitating at the moment that it's preventing therapy from benefiting me. It's almost like we can use medication as a life raft to get our head above water just enough that we can participate in the therapy itself. Does that make sense? That's where I see its role. And I think that's why they say therapy with medication gives us a best outcome. There's nothing I get more frustrated about than people who are on medication and aren't in therapy because medication doesn't actually fix the problem. It doesn't give us coping skills or tools. It just gets rid of a symptom and it might poop out at some point too. So then it can come right back and we have no tools to manage it. And I just feel like that's a very disempowering place to be. So if you find yourself on medication and not in therapy, look into some options, even cheaper options like things like BetterHelp. I have links in the description for that. You can get a discount on your first month. That's text, email, or video sessions. Um, There are also, you know, other reasonable options. Therapists work on sliding scales. Let's get you into therapy because, like I said, the medication doesn't actually fix anything, okay? So those are my thoughts. That's what's happening. And I really believe that we're going to need medication or something to get us to a place where we can benefit from therapy. So reach out to a psychiatrist, you know, or if you don't have a psychiatrist in your area, a regular doctor, whoever you can see to get properly uh, diagnosed and treated. Now, I think therapy in particular can cause us to have concerns about how we're representing ourselves, especially if we have anxiety. And that's why it can kind of trigger this sort of behavior. And sure, we probably, if we think about it, if we're really honest with ourselves, we have anxiety in other parts in our life, right? There's probably other ways this has shown up for us, whether that's um, if we're running late, it like stresses us to the max. If we constantly find ourselves worrying about past scenarios, future scenarios, and we can't stop it, no matter how hard we try, our brain goes right back to it. Like the person who asked this question said, like, your coping skills will help, but then my mind goes right back to it shortly after right? Consider how this might be showing up for you because anxiety is usually, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's palpable, but it's also like runs throughout our entire life. Like it's it's in everything. It's, it's invasive. It's almost like a virus in some uh, ways, if you think about it that way. And so that I think is just why this is showing up this way. And that would answer the question for the person who, the first person who said that they ruminate about their therapy and what they talked about, all that, as well as the other person who said that they, um, it's the opposite, where they ruminate about upcoming sessions. It goes both ways. And to the person who asked about the dialogue, and if I found a notebook full of di- uh, dialogues that my patient had written about therapy, I would be very curious about that and where it came from and what what goal or what purpose it served, I guess. Because it doesn't 
creep me out or anything if you're worried about that. No. As a therapist, I find, I think that's why I love what I do, is I find behavior so interesting, right? Almost all of our behavior, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, has a, a reason behind it, right? We don't just do things for no reason, right? Like you're writing this dialogue out because it probably helps assuage your anxiety about the therapy process, helps you put together what you think they're going to say. You can look at it and you can assess, okay, maybe, maybe instead of saying that, I'll say that, right? So it's, I would be curious about that. And I want to understand like the why behind it or the root. Now I might not say, why do you do this? That can sound very judgmental. Instead, I would say, you know, this seems like this would take a lot of time to write out this dialogue and to do this. Um, does it help you feel better? Or what? what's the reason that you find behind you doing this and taking the time to do this? You know? Um, yeah, that's really what I think about it. I assume it's just your own coping skill, your way of like processing. And I have no problem with it. If it's helpful and it calms you down and helps manage that anxiety, keep at it. Okay, let's move on to the other add-ons because like I said, there were quite a few. Another person said, as an add-on, I am chronically ill and have been in the hospital for over six months now and have just started seeing a psychologist here. He says I have PTSD and trauma relating to the events that happened in the hospital. But in between sessions, I can't stop thinking about what we spoke about, dreading the next session. And I feel on edge and more afraid after I spoke to him. That sounds like PTSD. Um, especially because I'm stuck in this environment. It makes my treatments and talking to my treatment team much harder. I've never needed to see a psychologist prior to this admission, so I don't know what it usually feels like after appointments. But is this a normal feeling or is it just not working? And is it normal? And if it isn't normal, how do I navigate this when I can't escape the things making it feel worse? What it That sounds to me like a PTSD response. And, and I wouldn't say that that's a quote unquote normal response to therapy. But when it comes to those with trauma and PTSD, I would say that it is. And the reason that I say that is because a lot of PTSD symptoms can feel like anxiety because what they're called in PTSD is hypervigilance. Like you said about feeling on edge, that like to me is like shoop, a little flag went up and I was like, oop, that's a PTSD symptom. You feel on edge because things can't be trusted. Your environment doesn't feel even the slightest bit safe. So you're like queued up, uh, uh, jumpy, waiting for something potentially to happen because your nervous system doesn't feel okay. It's sounding the alarm. You're constantly in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And in this case, I would assume that you're probably in freeze because you're stuck in the hospital, but maybe flight. And that's why you're feeling like, ooh, want to go? Um, but, and I'm sorry that you experienced that in the hospital. That sounds terrible. But that's that's what I would assume is coming up. And what my encouragement to you would be is to tell your therapist that you're having this response and this reaction and that it's hard to talk to your treatment teams. It ha Honestly, it has more to do with the PTSD and the trauma and the, the pain you've sustained already and not that much to do with what they're doing now. But if they have that information, meaning the information about you feeling on edge and not able to talk to them, then they can cater things to make it easier or more palatable for you or even just help you manage that like overwhelm. Now, I don't know if you're able to do this because I don't know what your chronic illness affects and, you know, if it affects your ability to move about. But Something that can help when we feel queued up and on edge is movement. So if you can walk around the ward, whatever you know area you're in, if or someone can help you walk, if you can stomp your feet, if you can shake your body, we want to release that excess energy, that queued up experience, that 
that fight, flight, freeze. We want to give our nervous system an outlet for all that energy that's building up. And that will help kind of calm our system down. Does it take it away? No. But if we're feeling too maxed out to even like hang out, participate, be present, then this can kind of take the edge off so that we don't feel so terrible. Okay. Um, let's see. Now, the another, okay, another add-on said, I do this so much now. I've been seeing my therapist for about two and a half years, but I only started doing this about six months ago. That's interesting. Whenever there's a certain period of time where you're like, hey, I've been seeing my therapist for two and a half years, but only in the last half a year, only the last six months, this has been happening. My first thought and first question, like if I, w I don't cut my patients off when they talk most of the time, unless I want to reframe something, but I almost want to cut you off in this question and say, what happened six months ago? What led up to this change? Because again, our behaviors don't just happen willy-nilly. They serve a purpose of some sort. What's that purpose? What happened? Okay, moving on. It says, the main thing that I ruminate about is what do I need to feel safe in sessions? And what do I need to be able to say what is really bothering me? Every time my therapist asks me either of these questions, my mind just goes completely blank. And I have no idea what's quote-unquote really bothering me. I have PTSD. I was just, it's like you read my brain. I have PTSD, GAD, which is generalized anxiety disorder, and depression from childhood abuse from my parents. And I have no idea what my parent or what my therapist thinks is my real cause of anxiety, as I've told her as much as I can remember. Please help. Okay. Again, what happened six months ago? And I feel like something has triggered and caused your anxiety or PTSD-like symptoms to like shoot through the roof. So I'm wondering if there was a shift in your life where things don't quite feel as neutral or safe, or if you're feeling um, kind of like the, P the, the symptoms of PTSD, that hypervigilance has kind of built over time. We've had no outlet. I feel like something has happened. And so I, so my answers to your question, so first of all, let's dig into that because I'm curious what happened and what triggered this response because clearly something has happened. But to answer your specific questions, like what your therapist thinks your real cause of the anxiety is, ask her. I think sometimes we worry about asking our therapist things, but we're there to share with you. And if you have a therapist who won't tell you your diagnosis or talk about treatment plans or tell you, answer questions you have, they're probably not a good fit for you. What I would hope and encourage all of us to find is a therapist that we can sit with, we can be honest with as we build trust over time. I know it takes a little time, but that and then when we're like, uh, what the hell is going on? Or wait, I feel so weird. Why? I want you to feel free to ask those questions, to ask your therapist, hey, I was thinking about this. What are our goals? Or what's my diagnosis? How'd you come to that decision? You know, what do you think my main issue is? We should feel free to ask our therapist these things. Now, I do want to add in this little caveat that sometimes as a therapist, I won't share like what I think your main issue is like upfront and blunt because I don't want to place that into your head. I want you to come around to figuring it out yourself, right? But I might add in like, let's say you ask me like, what's your real issue? What do you think my real issue is? And I'd be like, you know, to me, the biggest root cause is that trauma, is that PTSD, is that trauma in childhood. And I might name one of the traumas and I would say that, but I wouldn't give a more full explanation because I want you to figure out how it's showing up for you in your life in the way that, you know, that's affecting you most, if that makes sense. Okay. 
Now, there was another add-on that said also regarding anxiety. I was diagnosed with social anxiety disorder, though I don't really have symptoms anymore for about seven months. However, a few months ago, I was getting some OCD-like symptoms, like checking things a thousand times, only because I hadn't eaten enough for a while. And last week, I was really stressed, and I got strong anxiety symptoms like I had with my uh, seasonal affective disorder. However, oh, I think they put SAD as social anxiety disorder. Sorry, acronyms, right? However, it wasn't related to that. I was just afraid something bad was going to happen, but I didn't really know exactly what I was afraid of. Is that normal or shall I seek help again? I would definitely seek help again because your symptoms are still bothering you. Now, the interesting thing to remember about generalized anxiety disorder, OCD, and things like that is that OCD is an anxiety disorder. It's under this big umbrella of anxiety disorders. It just presents, obviously has its its own unique diagnosis. Um, and I think you're getting very stressed and not eating. I think all of that's kind of feeding into the same types of issues and symptoms. And I think there probably was a trigger for it getting worse and then for it going away for a while. So I would be curious about the, you know, the social anxiety of before and what was happening. Maybe journal about that. Think about that. Then, okay, after seven months, no more symptoms. Was that because you weren't engaging socially or did we have some coping skills or was our stress low because work was different? I don't know. School wasn't as bad. I don't know that. And then now it says OCD symptoms have kicked up because the interesting thing about mental illness is sometimes it's like teeter-tottering or, or like whack-a-mole, I guess, in your case, because there's more than two. But sometimes we'll have some symptoms go down. So that mole goes down. Then another one pops up and we're like, ah, we try to whack that one. Okay, that one goes down. Another one pops up, right? So you're like, we have eating disorder stuff. We got social anxiety. We got OCD. And then we have what sounds like generalized anxiety disorder. So we have a lot of things happening. And I guess my advice is to see someone, let them know about what's going on. And on your own time, do some detective work to figure out maybe what triggered these shifts. Because when we shift from one thing to another, there it's not 100% that there's like always a trigger, but it's usually pretty common that something has occurred to make us kind of switch into a different mental illness or a different presentation of our anxiety. Okay, now I want to go back to another add-on earlier that I feel like I didn't quite answer one portion of their question. And it was the person who said that they feel like they do the opposite where they ruminate about upcoming sessions and like what to say. And part of their question was, is this normal? And the short answer is, yes, a lot of people with anxiety struggle to not ruminate in between sessions. And then the how do I just let myself be on the days leading up to session and not stress too much? Obviously, we need to let our therapist know that this is happening, all the things I said before, treating our anxiety, you know, maybe more intensely with medication or or more intensive therapy. But the big kicker for you is going to be to distract. Because the interesting thing about anxiety is as we give into it more and more and more, it's almost like it gets stronger. And I mean that like it's like the pathways in our brain, these like connections get stronger. So it's easier for us to like think about something and then ruminate and not be able to move past it. And so just distract, distract as much as possible. I have that video 25 coping skills. Dig into that. There are process based ones in there that could help also. But I find with anxiety, the process based doesn't always help. And it's almost better for us to go into the distraction based ones until we get into therapy and we can kind of talk through it and figure it out. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, with that, let's move on to question number two. And this question says, hey, Katie, this is something I haven't been able to get my head around. 
why do I find it so easy to be open about everything, even the darkest parts of myself in front of strangers, even in public spaces, but around my parents, I can't seem to say a word. Also around strangers, I can talk about it with a smile and with such confidence. And I know it's probably just my way of coping or it's my putting up a front, but I don't even know the difference between me putting on a front and my honest feelings. I would love to hear what you think. Okay. And then there's also an add-on about the opposite thing happening. So my my gut goes to when we are talking to people who truly know us, the what we're going to say might have more weight behind it, might be more impactful, might be scarier because it could be more detrimental to our lives. Okay, there's that. So that's like my knee-jerk reaction. Then secondary, and I think one of the comments said this too, is like, I'm very curious about the abuse or whatever happened. And if your parents were part of it or allowed it to happen, it can be hard to say things in front of them because you're essentially telling your own abusers or neglectors, you know, that this happened. So that's kind of the two reasons that I that my I think. And so I'm curious, does any of that resonate with you? Do you feel like that's true? I think by and large, if our parents are not the abuser, that the reasoning of they, you know, there's not as much at, at, uh, at risk, I guess, when we talk to strangers, that's usually the reason. And it's also kind of a good way to practice saying things out loud and talking to people about it. But you know, everybody's a little bit different. I just think that it's it's because it doesn't maybe mean as much. And I also find it interesting as we grow up, we kind of have the our own, right, we're independent and we grow apart from our parents and being in public places and being able to talk about things in such a, with such nonchalance could be who you are now, but it might not be who your family thinks you are. And that can be difficult to kind of break stride with that. Like recently, my mom was in town visiting um, she stayed with us for a few months and we went next door to our neighbor's house for Thanksgiving. And we just bippity bop bop bop. We're all chitty chatting and talking and, you know, sharing stories of travel and all sorts of random stuff. And we had such a great time and so did our neighbors. It was really pleasant. And we we hang out with them, not all the time, but like frequently enough, you know. And we get back home and my mom's like, Yeah, you were talking a lot like you were nervous. And I was like, What? I was like, I wasn't nervous. I was like, that's how I always am. She's like, no, that's not how you always are. And I thought about it later and I was like, I'm 39. I haven't lived at home since I was 18 years old. So I've been out of the home longer than I was in the home. And my mom, she knows me and she sees me, but she doesn't engage with me in social situations like ever. Because, I mean, if she's coming to visit, I'm spending time with her. Sure, we might invite like a friend out here and there, but maybe like what, three, four times in the entire, you know, almost 20 years. It's different, right? I'm different. And that's okay. I don't expect her to like get it. But it would be, I'm just saying that because I think sometimes we're just different and our parents don't see us that way. And so we might just not engage with that part of ourselves in front of them. And if your parents aren't particularly emotionally intelligent or aren't in therapy themselves, it might be even harder to say what you need to say. Does does this make sense what I'm saying? There's a lot of different reasons, but those are my overall thoughts about it. Now, um, the comment said as an add-on, it's kind of the opposite for me. I can talk about some past traumas, no problem in person, but in therapy, it's so difficult to talk and I don't understand. Again, I think Well, this is a little bit different. So in therapy, I find that people can have a tough time opening up because they're afraid of what it would mean. 
meaning you're talking to a person whose whole entire job is around asking the right questions, getting the right information and helping you work through things and support you. It's very different than what we do with our friends in person, right? It's a very different dynamic. And with a therapist, it's going to mean something and they're going to remember and they're going to write it down and you're going to have to dig into it. And it can just feel much more intense. Whereas when we're with friends, family, strangers, whoever, it might not feel as intense. We might, especially with strangers, because I think um, strangers are, and the person who asked the first part of this question, she, she just clarified and was like, by strangers, I meant people at the gym. I'm not in therapy. Um, I actually don't know if it was a she when I said that. I'm sorry if I misgendered you. Um, but I think the strangers don't have as, there's not as much at stake there. And in therapy, even though it's not the same as parents, it can just feel more intense. And we might not be ready to dive that deeply into it. Like I've had patients of mine, I've told you guys this in the past, where we'll be meeting twice a week for months. And then all of a sudden, like six months in, they're like, oh, and by the way, you know, uh, and it'll always be like a doorknob confession, like right before they leave. They're like, by the way, my my dad sexually and physically abused me for like five years. But, you know, and then just like, we'll talk about it next time. Bye. And they just like walk out. And so that can be it's harder because we know the therapist is going to bring it up. We're going to have to work through it. I hope this is making sense and is clear. It's Monday for me when I'm recording this. So I'm sorry if it's not. OK, let's move on to question three. Now, question number three says, hey, Katie, I was wondering how trustworthy repressed memories are. They're very trustworthy. We'll get into that. I recently had a clear memory pop up that I was sexually abused by a female relative. It all sort of clicked into other realizations and suspicions about things that she did and has continued to do. I know there are so many other things that happened, but I just can't quite remember. And it's really frustrating me. Is there a way to uncover these memories or will they never appear? And, I, and how do I know if it's not just me making up stories to feel validated? It's really scaring me because this person is usually really loving and kind. And it makes me sick to, sick to think of the things that she did to me. And I don't know how I'm going to manage to see her again. Thanks, Katie. Your podcast has helped me so much. Of course, I'm so glad. Now, overall, repressed memories are incredibly trustworthy. It, but the thing is, we can't really force them. And sometimes repressed memories aren't full or complete. So having these like little blips or feel like we're flipping through a photo album or any number of ways I've heard, it can feel like we're watching an old movie that's black and white. We can feel like we're watching ourselves do something and we're like there, but we can't interact. Um, I'm talking about flashbacks kind of, but the memories can feel like flashbacks, right? Um, We can just have little snippets, like we have little like five, 10 second clips, Um, or we can have full on memories come back where they're like complete, everybody's different. Don't judge yours because maybe I didn't mention it or it's a little bit different than what I said. Everyone, rep- Everyone's repressed memories come back in their own unique and individual way, and it's all okay. Now, if you have not read the book, The Body Keeps the Score by uh, Bessel van der Kolk, it's a great and amazing book. It might be too much. I know it's a lot to digest, but there are a ton of it's studies that he references, and I'm trying. I was just trying to remember if it's all in the same chapter or not. I want to say they're all in like chapter four or five, but I could be wrong. Anyway, he digs into repressed memories and how how trustworthy they are, how valid they are. The one thing that I want everyone to know is that each time, this is a very natural 
memory process, and they do a beautiful job in Inside Out describing it, is every time we reach back into our memory bank, okay, this is me trying to remember something, I'm reaching back into it, I grab that memory and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. My brother and I, you know, making mud pies in the ditch next to our house. We really did this, by the way. I remember that. Hmm. And then I put it away. I've touched it, me today. And so that memory is going to be slightly changed because I touched it. Because every time we retrieve a memory, it changes ever so slightly because me today saw it, had feelings and thoughts about it. And it changed the way I viewed the memory. Does that make sense? I know that's kind of like a little esoteric or a little woo-woo. But though, so it inside out member sadness touches a lot of the core memories and a lot of her memories. She's like running along and she was turning them all blue and Joy was so angry with her. But what it was was she was creating kind of like nostalgia or when you like miss something, right? That like, because they had to move. If you haven't watched Inside Out, I encourage you to do it. But this young girl had to move and leave all her friends that she knew behind. And so she missed it and it was sad. So a lot of her memories, because she'd retrieved them recently, were then touched with sadness because she wasn't there anymore. Now, anyways, all that to say that those memories are trustworthy. They might just have a little, a different color to them. They might look a little different or feel a little different because of where you're at today and what you think about that memory now, if that makes sense. Okay. Now, they're very trustworthy. However, no therapist should try to tell you what your memory is or guide you, meaning, oh, did it? Did they next take you out to do? And you're like, yeah, yeah, maybe they did. There shouldn't be any of that, what I would call leading dialogue in therapy. It should be much more uh, just question-based, like, okay, so you, so you said that you remember wearing a yellow top. Okay, uh, do you remember anything else? Anything that you smelled? Anything, you know, and they just guide through questions without putting any information into your memory or brain. So that's how it should happen. Now, uncovering the memories, the best tool we can use is what I would call like a trauma timeline or retelling of the story based on what you do remember. And it can help to kind of go out of the trauma memory a little bit. So let's say something happened in the winter of our 10th, 10 year, we were 10 years old that, that Christmas. It might be helpful if you're able to try to think back to that summer before and like start telling me some stuff about that because starting off with memories that aren't emotionally charged, meaning aren't traumatic, can keep us in it a little bit longer and sometimes, sometimes not always, but sometimes reveal more about the trauma memory as we lead up to it. Okay, so trauma timelines where we put down our traumas as much as we can remember. This is the living, breathing document. Don't think that once you put a trauma in at age eight that you can't be like, I guess maybe it was, I was actually 10 or wow, I think I was six. You move them around as as things come up to you, okay? And there's no right or wrong. You just take your time with it. And as things reveal themselves to you, you fill it in. And that can kind of help sometimes, you know, bring up more. However, sometimes our memories don't exist fully because we were dissociated. You guys all know part of dissociation is what's called a dissociative fugue. And a dissociative fugue is that lack in of memory around that situation. So let's say um, I was traumatized when I was 16. And I, I don't know, let's say I was assaulted by someone at school. I will... I could have dissociated to protect myself from the trauma so that I wasn't consciously aware of what was going on. My brain was like, this is too much. Wah! Pulls the ripcord. People ask me about it and I'm like, 
I don't even know. I like I, I have like spotty memory at best, right? I'm like, oh, I kind of remember before and a little, but that's it. Boom. So we don't remember. And as I work in therapy, some things might be retrieved, but that dissociation might cause that whole traumatic experience or at least like 60% of it, right? Because sometimes it takes us a while to get pushed into dissociation. That actual portion may never have been logged away into long-term memory. So unfortunately, sometimes they don't come back because they were never there. But what is helpful is to do some somatic therapy where we figure out how it feels in our body and we work to overcome those symptoms because that's really how it's showing up for us now. Even though we don't remember the trauma, it still happened. Hence the name of the book, you know, Van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score because the body remembers, okay? There was a comment on this. I said, I've had the same symptoms of sexual abuse and a few suspicions. I was trying so hard to make sense of it. Then in the middle of a yoga class, a memory flooded me. At the time, I was 100% certain it was real, but now I question. If I was sure of it once and then doubt was secondary, does that mean it's more trustworthy? It doesn't mean it's more or less trustworthy. I think because you had it flood you randomly in yoga, which can be, again, that movement, that body movement can shake things loose. I, and you believed it was 100% real, I, my like spidey therapist senses say that that doubt that came afterward is more of that trauma response where we invalidate and we minimize to go forward and to continue. It's like almost like a knee-jerk reaction. We have a flood of memory of trauma and then we're like, oh, no, 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 that couldn't have been impossible. And we try to just like stuff it down. I believe just like you that that memory was most likely, you were certain of it. And that, that secondary response was actually just kind of like a trauma response. Okay. Another person says, as an add-on, could CBT harm someone with undiagnosed complex PTSD if the therapy only focused on some symptoms? I fear that I pushed some memories out of reach because I felt that they shouldn't matter anymore. In CBT, I worked on my perfectionism, burnout and depression, and ADD diagnosed in adulthood. It was somewhat helpful, but it felt too surface level. The focus was on priorities today. Yeah, CBT can be very today focused. Um, Emotion management and replacing coping skills. The past felt like context that wasn't supposed to be as big of a deal as I made it out to be. Could that approach have led to traumas being stuffed down deeper as if they were irrelevant? Kind of like toxic positivity or without unhealthy defenses or coping mechanisms, wouldn't there be a danger of an avalanche of flashbacks? And P.S., in trauma therapy, we started working, we started by examining the fence, noting all of the minefield alarms and learning safety protocols. It's been validating and enlightening to see how the past still affects me and to face it in mostly manageable chunks. Okay, so. No, I do not believe that CBT could make your like PTSD worse or that it could harm you more. I think that it isn't necessarily effective unless it's what we call trauma-focused CBT because there is, it looks like TF-CBT. So CBT, anybody doesn't know, is cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy that's available and people do find it very helpful. I believe that it's possible that you're therapist I don't I, first of all I don't know why you were in basic CBT if we oh you had undiagnosed sorry I'm just reading through the question again so you had undiagnosed PTSD or complex PTSD so that's why um but I don't I don't think it would do more harm 
but the therapists themselves could have made it more difficult for you by pretending that those things aren't important or are just like context, like we're not going to get into them. I I do take some tools from CBT. You guys know I talk about it all the time. I would never tell a patient that, you know, that's just context, like ah, da, 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 da. we're talking about this now. I would never do that. And I'm surprised that they did it. I think at the very least, if I was if I only did CBT and you were, you know, talking about things that sounded kind of trauma based, I might refer you to see someone for EMDR, or maybe we need to find you a trauma informed therapist or, you know. I, I feel like they were out of their scope of practice and they didn't, it, what maybe wasn't the best treatment for you. Um, but overall, I don't really feel like CBT should harm someone with undiagnosed complex PTSD. But it sounds like your therapist's inability to recognize what was going on could have done more harm for you. But I'm really glad that you're in trauma therapy and, you know, the fence and noting all the minefield. I'm so glad that you're doing all of that and that it's, you know, been been helpful and validating because that's the goal. And I think that's what I'm kind of disappointed with that therapist about is that sure, you want to do one style of therapy or maybe you only do one style of therapy, but then you should refer out if it's out of your scope, meaning it's out of what you're able to offer and at least acknowledge that there's trauma there. It seems very dismissive and I don't, I don't really like that. So I'm sorry that was your experience. Now there's another comment that said, as an add-on question for Katie, do you have any advice for what to do if what we've recovered from, wait, okay, sorry, do you have any advice for what to do if you've recovered isn't totally clear or definitive? Oh, you don't know if you're recovered. I see. I've had two experiences so far, maybe flashbacks. My therapist has called them episodes, but that may be because I've expressed that I don't know what to call them. One time I felt like my body was really small and I was looking up at a young version of my dad and a family friend. That sounds like a flashback, followed by overwhelming fear. The second time I didn't see anything, but was overcome again with paralyzing fear that I was unsafe, when in reality, I was completely safe. I'm scared of it happening again, but I'm also scared I'll never, it'll never happen again and I'll go through life with a big question mark. What should I do and how long of a ride am I in for? Oh, P.S. Hello from Austin. Hope you and your family are staying warm in the power outages. We are. Thank you so much. Now, okay, good questions all around. The, these sound like flashbacks to me the feeling like you're little and you're looking up, like that sounds like a, a memory, like a flashback to a certain time. Now the unsafety I'm very curious about because I'm wondering why we felt unsafe, what had happened. We might have a repressed memory in there. There might be some things that were stirring up that we didn't think, you know, were going to be stirred up. And especially since your dad was younger and you're little, I, I feel like that's definitely a flashback. And so what should you do? I honestly would tell your therapist more about them, talk about them, be curious about these flashbacks. Um, unfortunately, you know, we don't really know what's happening, but that's why we the curiosity, we need to be a detective. We need to learn about these so that we can figure out what is going on and how to best process it, deal with it. If it is past trauma and these are repressed memories that are surfacing in their flashbacks, then we probably, you know, need to add that into the work that we should do with our therapist around our past trauma. Um, since you're feeling a lot of fear, it might, it might, inner child work might even be helpful because you are younger. So like, what would that little you in that flashback say? What, what does she have to say? Are we listening? What do, you know, all of that stuff. And then also, you know, um, what would adult you say to younger you? I think there's a lot in there. Um, how long of a ride are you in for? I wouldn't say that you're like in for a long ride, but trauma work can be challenging and it can take time. 
but it can also be incredibly healing. And you might be surprised how often this kind of hypervigilance or flashbacks are actually showing up for you, but they're just in smaller ways. And these are just a few that you recall because maybe they were more intense or longer or something like that. But this not feeling safe, maybe being on edge, I'd be curious about like anxiety, depression, symptoms and things like that. And if we could maybe tie them to PTSD or not. Um, but I'd let you've already told your therapist about it, right? But I would let them know that you're curious and concerned and you feel like these are I, I would call them flashbacks an episode to me sounds like we think it's like mania that's what we or like when we have psychosis we have episodes I, I feel like what you're experiencing is a flashback so continue talking about it continue being curious about it I know they're scary but I want you to know that they're not going to hurt you and they're actually kind of helpful information I always think flashbacks kind of show themselves when our brain's like you know what we're ready to work through this and even though it's really uncomfortable, we're like, no, 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 it's still, um, it's worth it. Okay. Now there, oh, and if anybody didn't know in Austin, we had ice storms, which broke like a shitload of our trees, but luckily only two branches hit our roof and it doesn't seem that they've done any damage and we did not lose power, but just a couple blocks from us did. It just didn't hit us, I guess. Um, our power did, like our internet went out for a little while and things like surged, but we happened to be Okay. Um, and I hope everybody else in Austin is, I mean, we're in the repair mode right now, getting our trees cut and fixed and cleaned and oh my God, such a mess. So I hope everybody out there is okay and safe. Okay, final comment on this says, I've recently had a strange pop-up memory like this. Mine was of a few teachers that I had throughout my time in middle school and high school. And now only one of the three people actually did anything to me, but I knew the other two teachers so well prior to them getting arrested. Ooh, arrested? Jesus criminy. I opened up about this to my therapist last week and her initial thought was, am I portraying what these three teachers did or did not do on my, to my dad since my dad did rape me? I felt so invalidated after she said that. I completely shut down and I have no clue how I'm going to face her again. Please help. Oh my God, I'm so sorry you had that response. I, I don't really, I don't understand why she would ask that question. I, I don't, maybe she was trying to gather if there's like correlation or overlap and because maybe you're processing, you know, the sexual abuse that you sustained from your father. Maybe she thinks that's why it's coming up. If you're able, now I know this is hard because you were very vulnerable and you f felt hurt. If you're able, ask your therapist about this. Say, hey, I mean, I had this memory pop up and I brought it up and I felt just really invalidated. I'm kind of hurt when I was trying to share and I don't really know why this memory popped up, but could you, you know, help me dig into it? Now, I know it's hard to speak up, especially when we feel kind of harmed and hurt by this, but sometimes therapists will say things not realizing how hurtful they are. It could have been like from your therapist's perspective, they could have been thinking, oh, maybe this is coming up because of the work we're doing and they were trying to glean that information, but they just didn't do a very good job of it. Or they're shitty at their job and we should find you someone else. But I like to give them at least the benefit of the doubt because no therapist is perfect. And sometimes, you know, we're not wordsmiths and it's hard for us to get the right questions out in a way that isn't offensive. Because when we are, you know, ripping ourselves open and showing or being vulnerable and showing those icky parts, to have someone not say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Okay, let's dig into this and this validation and this, you know, uh, recognition feeling heard and understood when someone's not able to offer that in the way that we needed to get it 
it can be really harmful and really hurtful. And I feel like that's what happened to you. And I'm so, so sorry. Um, on your own, it might be helpful to be curious about what made this memory pop up. Like, do you think it's because you're doing this work in therapy that it triggered this other memory as well? Um, my doc, my friend, Dr. Alex Altman had told us years ago, if you guys don't recall, how trauma memories are kind of connected. And if they're similar in action, like let's say we were in a car crash and then we were in an uh, I don't know, snowmobile crash or something, those are, can be connected. They're very similar. And so when we work on the car crash trauma, it can inadvertently process through that other crash. Um, so that could be what's happening, but please speak up and bring this up. And I'm so, so sorry that they said that. Let's move on to question number four. And question number four says, hey, Katie, since the pandemic, I feel like I've turned from an optimist to a pessimist. And I just don't know if I'll ever be able to be generally optimistic especially injustices around the world, be it right-wing politicians coming to power in my and multiple other countries, wars, human rights issues, etc. I just despair. I don't understand how so many people could be so cruel and unempathetic, and I've disconnected myself from the news and politics as much as I can for the last three years. I, that was my first, it's like you read my mind. But I just feel so guilty about this. And like I should use my privileges being German in Germany against all of this cruel in the world, but I just don't understand how it can be this bad in the first place. I don't want to live in a world or society where people are like this, and I just don't understand how people are like this. So I know even less what I could do to help change. It's making me not want to be part of society or part of this world, but I know that if, I'm, if I committed suicide, I'd just affect the people close to me badly. How can I better deal with this despair? Man, okay, <clears throat> I feel this, and I... Not to like place blame or point fingers because that doesn't always help and we don't need to have anyone to blame, but God damn it, fuck the media, man. Fuck social media, fuck the news. I think it's all bullshit and I get annoyed both sides, all sides, everybody. I feel like, and I, I know you're in Germany, so I can't speak to the German culture, but in the States and in Canada specifically, because I, I have family in Canada too that I talk to all the time. My sister-in-law is here visiting right now. Um, I know they need the views and they need the clicks. So they put these very divisive statements out and they have people with opinions, no facts. When did the news not become just the news? Like you should just be reporting what happened. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or right or left or liberal or conservative or whatever the fuck you want to call it. I don't really care. I just want you to tell me what's going on so I can be informed. I mean, Sean and I mostly watch the BBC America because at least I know greater what's happening in our world. And it's not so, you know, like ethnocentric where it's only U.S. Um, also, they have fewer opinion things, I find. So anyways, long story short, limiting like you're already doing, limiting your access to media. It's not just the news. I think social media is just as bad. And when we when they find us clicking on things, watching things, liking things that are related to one view or one way of thinking, seeing, whatever, we get more of it. And then we find ourselves kind of in this like negative uh, space or kind of this one view and everybody's angry about it. And it just kind of can snowball what we're already experiencing. Okay. And so here's my homework and here's the homework for all of us. And something that does help me when I'm feeling this way, because we've all been in pits of despair during the pandemic. I don't care which side you're on. There's no right or wrong side things are crazy, people are angry, and it's just been hard. I look for the positive. I think that's why I was at John Krasinski 
at the beginning of the pandemic did some good news. Do you remember his little news show? I mean, also, I love The Office and I love John Krasinski. So I was like, sign me up. But some good news. Look for some good news. I encourage you go into your TikTok or Instagram or whatever. Find things that are positive that don't talk about this kind of shit. And if you see this shit come up, say, show me less. You can hit those three dots. Show me less of this or scroll quickly and heart. I don't know, a baby goat, something lighter. I want you to look out into your space and into your world for things that are happier or more neutral. The more I know our brain is wired to seek out threat, which is why so many people are getting pulled into this negative space, right? It's part of our biology so that we can survive and thrive and not be killed, right? We looking for threat, we prepare for threat, and then we're okay and we live through it. However, in our world today, the threat's like existential. I mean, I know for some people it is very real. Like if you're in Ukraine and if you, you know, are in an area where you feel like there's lots of crime or danger, gun violence, things like that. I know, I mean, Chicago, I think had like record numbers this year. So please be safe if you live in that area. So I know some of us are truly under threat. However, I really want us all to look out for things that are positive. Like I firmly believe in the good in people. And I find when I put it out there, I was reading something recently. It might've been a comment from one of you. No, I shared it on my Instagram. That's what it was. This guy shared, I'll be really brief with this, but this is just an example of what I want you to look for. And this is a bigger, a big to do or bigger to do, but not really. This guy said he was at the Atlanta airport and he was running late for his connecting flight. And if he ran, he knew that he would, you know, barely make it. And he got on the little shuttle bus that was taking him because I guess part of it was under construction or something, taking a little shuttle bus from one gate to the next. And when he got on, there was um, a child that got on with this family and he could tell right away that the child, you know, had some kind of special needs and had this cute little backpack and was like clearly very nervous to be traveling, but also kind of excited. I think he had a SpongeBob backpack. Anyway, then his stop was the next stop. Next stop, you know, gate B. He got off and that child followed him and the door shut before the parents could get off of that shuttle. Can you imagine? Oh my God. And he, he he was telling the story and the guy said, and I could see the terror in the parents' eyes. So I mouthed to them, I'll see you at the next stop. And so he got back on the next bus that stopped. They got back on the shuttle and they went and they found the parents anyway. And then he ended up getting to the gate. So that was his good deed. He stayed with that child. He tried to talk to him while they kind of, you know, were waiting to get on and waiting to see the parents. Like it's it's going to be okay. And oh, you like SpongeBob, you know, just making kind of little short, like small talk. The parents were so grateful. It, you know, kept that boy safe. Who knows what, you know, it, how fucking scary. Anyway, ended up being okay. And then as he was running, to, he's like, I'm not going to make my flight. I knew this was going to slow me down because he had to like essentially get back on the tram. He didn't need to get on and then go, you know. So anyway, got back, made it to the gate. And the woman at the front said, are you, you know, Mr. Clark, let's say was his name. And he said, yeah. And she's like, I held the plane. I knew you would make it. I knew you were in the airport. Um, get on. He was the last one on. He took off. He made his connecting. Everything was fine. And the the moral of the story was really like, we have to believe in the good. We have to look for the positives. Um, it's out there. And sure, there's plenty of negative. I'm not saying we're negating it and being like, oh, la, 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 it doesn't exist, but we're overwhelmed. We're full of it. And so instead of getting wrapped up in all these 
us versus them kind of messaging that we're receiving through news and media. Instead, let's look for the, because we're all human. We're all in this world together. We're doing the best that we can. And if we show up for each other and we believe in the good in each other and we look for that good, we'll all feel better. So that's my advice. Okay. And hang in there. I know it's been a shitty few years. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, I do hope all is well. It is. Thank you. My question is, how do I stop obsessing over the people that I care about getting older? Ooh, Sean does this sometimes. There's just a massive fear of running out of time. Looking forward to your response. And of course, happiest of Thursdays. Happy Thursday. Okay. A lot of people fear getting older, fear ourselves getting older and those in our lives getting older and missing out on opportunities. And I really feel like this is like an anxiety response. And my best advice is to take some time to be curious about where it's coming from because my like therapist gut is like, maybe we're afraid of people getting older because we don't know if we can manage the grief. Hmm. Maybe we're worried about being alone. Maybe we need more connection. Maybe it's the people that know us the best that we're worried about. You know, I don't know. Let's think about it. Are there certain people that we're worried most about getting older? Is it that we're worried about us getting older and passing away? Are we worried about what the end means? Are we worried about, you know, never being around the people that understand us? Can be curious about what that, what, what's, the real question here like what's the real deep worry when people get older what does that mean to you what do you tell yourself about that what are we assuming or getting wrapped up in be curious allow yourself to dig into that for a little bit because usually it's something along the lines of like i lost someone before could never get that time back i wish i spent more time or i don't want to get older i'm scared of dying i don't want people to get sick i don't know how i'll deal with this how will i ever continue on i don't think i can cope i thought that for years i mean i still kind of do i guess if i really dig into it but like when my dad passed away i was like mom you better get your shit to, you better be healthy because i can't be an orphan you know not that i'm an orphan but i felt that and i was like i only have one parent left and that was like devastating to me um so where's it coming from let's be curious about it and then what action can we take to manage that? So if the concern is I'm, I don't want to waste any time, can we set up like a regular get together with our loved ones? Whether if we don't live, like if you're with me and you don't live in the same state, how often can you go home? Can you do long weekends? Can we plan to have like a yearly thing that we do together, whether that's a vacation together, whether we just go home for the holiday? Like, what is it? Can we do that? Let's make plans. Let's spend time. Let's get on the phone. Phones are so easy now. But I remember back in the day when you'd have to get like a calling card and poke in like 14,000 numbers just to access. And they're like, I'm running out of time. Got to go by. Like now it's so easy. Let's utilize that. Okay. FaceTime, all that stuff. If the worry is about like, I don't think I'll be able to manage the grief or I don't think I can deal, then what would it look like if we could deal? What are the attributes or the frame of mind or tools that we would have to have to feel better. Maybe we should be in therapy to talk about this and to process it. And if, and only if, it feels like this just weird, uncontrollable worry about something that we have no control over, we we don't know how to deal with, just, it just spins and spins and spins and feels very chaotic, then it's possible that that could be anxiety. And again, therapists, psychiatrists, those are going to be your go-tos and the people that you'll want to talk to to better understand 
where this anxiety is coming from. But usually, I think for, for the most part, it comes out of one of those things like I can't handle the grief. I don't know if I'll, I can deal with that. I, I feel like I'm not going to get to spend enough time. So much that I still want to do with them. And those are things we can actually work toward. We can put goals together and make plans and do things. And, you know, you'll never regret the things that you did. Like, not, I shouldn't say you'll never regret the things you did, but you'll never regret the time spent with those you love is really what I want to say. Okay, hang in there. It gets better. Let's move on to question number six. Question number six says, hey, Katie, what if therapy just makes you go home and cry too much? And not because you were talking about something sad or heavy, but because of how the appointment went. I really like my therapist. She's really insightful and helpful. But about once every few weeks, I come home and cry for the next couple of days, often because my therapist said something that I reacted really badly to, or sometimes because I feel that I'd been frustrating to work with. Interesting. Or because it seemed as if the usual connection wasn't there anymore. Is it normal and I should just keep plowing through or should I do something different? For context, I do have ASD, autism spectrum disorder, and anxiety and maybe some attachment stuff. Thanks for all that you do. This is a great question. And I don't think I've really talked about this before. Um, so thanks for asking it. But therapy is is interesting. Okay, now, first of all, therapy should not make us feel worse every time. Like, yes, it gets worse before it gets better. And it takes some effort on our part to kind of push through that. It's almost like because we're trying to change behavior at the beginning, it's like so uncomfortable. And, and I usually cry every session anyway, but it does get lesser and lesser as we go on. So at the beginning, it can feel bad, not because a therapist is saying things that are hurtful, but more so because of the amount that we're going through and processing and kind of venting and dumping because we've been like stuffing things down for so long. Now we're like, Bleh, and it can feel bad at first. OK, so hang in there if that's happening for you. However, for the person who's asked, asked this question, that doesn't sound like that's what's happening. It sounds like it's more about your interpretation or your judgment on yourself in regards to therapy. And I would let your therapist know that this is happening because it's so debilitating. It's it's affecting your life. It, it's uh, affecting your ability to function. And they need to know because I think we might already be our worst enemy and saying enough bad things to ourselves. And so if we feel like it didn't go really well, it's almost like we can't pull our brain out of like ruminating on that and making us feel worse and worse and then probably shit talking, shit talking. And we cry because we're worried about her leaving us because some attachment stuff you mentioned, maybe her leaving us. Also, when we have ASD, it can feel it. The thing that I think is a common misconception about autism spectrum disorder, and I am by no means a specialist here. So if I've offended you or if you have a clarification, you feel free to leave it in the comments. However, the one misconception I find most common about those with ASD is that people think they cannot connect or that they don't want connection. And the truth is, we do terribly. We just don't really know how to get it. And it's hard for us, right? It's a different, our, our brain works differently. And so when some people make eye contact and hug and want touch, that might not feel good to us. And we might want connection through shared activities or some other way of feeling like seen and heard and feeling connected. And anyway, so that could be feeding into that attachment stuff also. Um and it could be why this is so painful for you. But let your therapist know, I think, telling them that this is happening so we can dig into it. Again, be curious, not judgmental, because I don't know. It sounds like it's more 
about, like you said, because my therapist said something I reacted really badly to, you're judging yourself. I shouldn't have done that. When it's therapy, it's okay. It's part of the process. Or you said that you feel like you're frustrating to work with. So it sounds like it's not really even therapy itself. It's how we judge ourselves about the therapy sessions. And so let your therapist know this is happening because I think there are some things that they could do on their side to make it a little bit better for you and to make it easier. Like she could end the therapy five or 10 minutes early and do a check-in and say, I think this session went really well. I liked that you said this. You're doing well with that. And do like a touch base. This was good. We're going to work on this. This is our homework. How are you feeling? And that kind of time for the check-in could allow you to maybe express a concern so that we don't go home and cry for days. Because I don't like that, that that's happening to you either. It's really uncomfortable. And that's not the goal of therapy. So let your therapist know, you know, we got to be curious about where this is coming from and how we can mitigate it. And I think there's a lot we can do. So don't worry. I think it, I, I mean, I have 100% faith that it will get better. Okay. Moving on to question number seven says, a follow-up question. Yay, says, hey, Katie, last episode, you answered a question about intrusive thoughts and asked if they were ego dystonic. If you don't recall, ego dystonic means we don't like it. It feels icky on the inside. We're like, I have to do this thing. And uh, I feel like a compulsion. You're like, or ego syntonic. We're like, yay, I like this. Feels good. It's like part of who I think I am. Okay. The curious part is, I think their intrusive thoughts are ego syntonic. I get excited at the possibilities. I am sometimes attracted to women as well as men, some emotionally, some physically and sexually. I've had a few encounters with both, all in my late teens as I was exploring and rebelling from my Christian upbringing, which is almost 20 years ago. But I also love my husband. My question then is, how can I explore this without risking my relationship? And what if I bring it up, but no one is into it? My husband has been cheated on in his past marriage and is a somewhat jealous person, full of anxiety and insecurity. The fact that most of my feelings are toward our friends concerns me. I don't want to lose them as friends, but I'm very curious about the connection I feel. You're the best. Much love from Texas. Of course, um, let's explore. I think the safest way to explore things like this without risking relationships and harming our life and feeling like we've just imploded, because sometimes people who have these kinds of thoughts will act really impulsively. So my caution to you is let's be thoughtful and kind of methodical about this and not impulsive. Let's not jump to any conclusions, okay? And so my advice is in therapy, I think you said you're in therapy in the last question, the last, like the follow-up, the first one. But if not, I would get into therapy and I would talk with your therapist about this and be curious about where it's coming from. I'd want to honestly, personally, go back to your late teens when you had encounters with both and you felt like it was a rebellion. Where did that come from and what did that feel like? And because, and the only reason I bring it up is because my question then is like, if we take our time and think about it and are honest, because it doesn't. It's not going to hurt us. It's only going to help us to be honest with ourselves, even as it can get uncomfortable and we can feel confused. Do your best to be honest. But I wonder if we are in another rebellious stage in our life, do we feel like things are just kind of boring because we're like, well, I'm married to this guy and I do this and nothing exciting happens, right? Are we feeling that? Or are we genuinely interested in relationships with other people and would potentially want to have an open marriage or, you know, 
these swingers or something, whatever, whatever that would look like. Maybe we don't want to be married anymore. You know, I don't know. But we have to be curious. So I'm curious about that late teen experience. Let's let's dig into that in therapy. Let's talk about it. Let's journal about it. And I'd probably keep it in your computer under a lock document. And if he asks about it, like, hey, Han, this has a password or whatever, I would just say, those are my journals from therapy. So it's just private. You know, say I'm just working on some stuff. If he doesn't respect that, that's a whole nother thing. Um, and that would be its own issue because we should feel free in our relationships to have some things private. Like it's not a healthy thing in a relationship for everyone to know everything and to not feel like you have any space to to process. Okay. So that would be my advice there is to just dig into that because I'm curious about this rebellion piece. And let's, so we do that. So once you think back to the teen years, what that was like, and then I want you to consider and just be honest with like we can do some like role playing in our head of what we would say and what we assume their response is. Like it sounds like your husband most likely would not be up for this. And so I'm not saying with 100% certainty, I don't know him, but it sounds like what you're saying. He probably and most likely would say no. What would that mean to you? And if he does say no, is this a must have for you in your life? We all change and grow. We either grow with the people that we're in relationships and we fight to keep that or we choose to go in opposite directions. And if he isn't up for this, is this a part of your life that you need to have? And if he can't get on board, we're we're going left and he's going right, you know? Um, let's just think it through. Role play it out. What do we think people will say? What, you know, what would that look like? If everybody did say yes, do you think that that could really be a healthy relationship for you with these other people? Let's just play it out. It's okay to take your time on this. Don't feel rushed. Again, no impulsive decisions. I find that usually leads us to not feeling good about things and feeling like, you know, I didn't make a good choice because we didn't give ourselves an opportunity to. So give yourself the opportunity to dig into your past about what this meant for you, where this came from, and, you know, why it's so interesting, intriguing, and possibly an enjoyable thing that you want to add to your life now. Um, And then, you know, how it could play out. Okay. So that's how we explore without risking the relationship. We don't really say anything to anybody yet. We think about it, play it through on our own first. Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, hey, Katie, I've listened to a few therapists podcasts and I always come back to you. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad I could be helpful. I've never been to therapy before now, and I'm certain no one in my rural area will measure up to what I've taken away from just listening to you. Could this just be another avoidant tactic for me? And how can someone find a therapist that you like without wasting our time getting to know one and not like them and then having to start all over with someone new? I'm so glad you asked. I actually just recorded a video. I don't know when it will go live because I did like four videos at once. It was probably the most I've done in a while. But I, I, we were in LA. I'd been just backed up and haven't. I've been working on research and scripting and stuff, and I never filmed them. So, finally did. Um, two things. First of all, this could be an avoidant tactic because it's that kind of like sabotaging before you even try. We're like, it's never going to work out. Why even try? I definitely get that vibe from this. But the real answer is that first of all, tons of therapists now are online, so you could get out of your rural area if you're okay doing online therapy. I know it's not as good, but give it a go, right? It's worth it. Um, If you could potentially find someone that you have a good fit with. Now, even in your own rural area, almost all therapists offer free consultations. Now, or they'll call them, uh, what are they? There's another word they use. It's like to see if you're a fit. 
So you can just ask like, hey, do you offer like a 15, 20 minute, you know, kind of meet and greet to see if we're a good fit? I think it's like a fit check, they call it. Anyway, a lot of therapists will offer these as a way for you to get to know them, them to get to know you and to make sure it's a good fit, that the therapeutic relationship could work. They're free, they're short, and that could be a way to save you money and time and prevent you from feeling like you got to start all over when you realize you don't like them. I know it's not perfect. Obviously, it's just a one-time thing. But they can even, might even call them assessments. That could be another word that's used. Um, but that's a great way to ensure that you're not wasting your time. You're not sharing a bunch of stuff with someone only to find out that you don't really like them. That's I feel like that's the most cost and time effective way to do that. And I would encourage you, especially in your rural area, make a couple appointments for people who are you can see in person and then make a couple online and just gauge how it feels and what you think. Um, like I've been looking for a therapist in my area for quite some time. My neighbor recommended someone who only does online. And I was like, I just don't like online, but I'm going to make a phone consult with her. And I have one other person that I'm waiting for my appointment for. So you got to keep trying. This will be like my number six. It takes a little while sometimes to find somebody you vibe with. Um, but hopefully that helps. Okay. And also, I know that you guys feel like I'm really, some of you think like I'm great at my job and I'm the best therapist out there. But it's because you know me over time and we've had an opportunity to build a relationship online, which I know is is kind of a weird thing, but it's also something that when we haven't met another therapist, we haven't had that opportunity. So the relationship we have with me can feel much better or like it's going to be more effective when in reality, it could be just as effective with someone else. We just haven't had the chance to get to know them. And so giving yourself that opportunity means that you could find another Katie in your community or another whoever therapist that you attach with and connect with most because, you know, Again, you just haven't had the chance to meet them and you don't know. It's almost like we're judging them before we meet them. And there are some amazing therapists out there and finding that right fit can truly be life-changing. So stick with it. You'll get there. And I challenge you, make some of those consultation appointments. See where we get, okay? Okay. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sending in your questions. If you're new here, welcome, welcome. I ask for the questions on Sundays over on my podcast channel. So if you go to YouTube and put in Ask Katie Anything, it'll come up. But the channel name is Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the name of the podcast I have with my husband, Sean, on the community tab on Sundays around usually like anywhere from noon to 2 p.m. I ask you for your questions and I pull from there and that's how you get them answered. Feel free to keep asking questions over and over and over until it gets answered. I hope my answers were helpful this week. I love you all. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you next time. Bye. Ask Katie.